Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Grace is an amazing conversation, amen? Does <laughs> it ever get boring to talk about grace? Look, if it ever gets boring to talk about grace, we probably need to check our hearts, don't we? I mean, when we talk about grace, we talk about God's unmerited favor, undeserved favor, what he's done for us regardless of us. When we talk about God's unconditional love for us, we're talking about how God loves us perfectly, unconditionally, regardless of what we do or don't do. That's amazing. That's amazing grace. Look at uh, Acts chapter 15. Verses 1 through 11. We're going to walk through this passage, and and I'll tell you, this is one of the most amazing moments in the church. We've seen some pretty amazing ones. This one ranks right up there, perhaps as one of the top important issues of the early church. Because there's an attack on grace. There's not only an attack on grace when it comes to how we define coming to Christ. There's also an attack on grace when we talk about what it means as believers, to walk with Christ. And they've got to deal with this. And they do it in a magnificent way. The Holy Spirit works through the leaders in a tremendous way. And so my prayer is that we come away uh, again refreshed and reminded of the greatness of God's grace and the greatness of his love for us. How his love for us is unconditional. I would summarize it this way. Believers must be careful not to add anything to grace because grace plus anything is no longer grace. If we add something to grace, it's no longer grace. Grace plus something is not grace. If we say, this is what you've got to do, and oh, by the way, we're so thankful for God's grace, you've just undercut grace because there's nothing that we can do. If you say, well, this is, as believers now, what we should do in the sense that we've got to earn God's favor. We've got to somehow prove to him that we are worthy of his love. You have just undercut grace. God's grace towards us is not based on what we could do, what we think we should do, in the sense of what we have to do in order to earn his favor. God's grace towards us is out of the expression of who he is, that which he does because of who he is, regardless of us. And he does it with joy. So his love towards us is unconditional. We can trip and we can stumble and he loves us the same. And that's an amazing thing. This is under attack. There's three things that we'll look at, at least through the first 11 verses. James comes into this later on because this is a longer discussion than what we have time specifically for this morning. But there's three things. First of all, there's an alarming threat. Secondly, there's a joyful celebration. And last, there's a clear defense. Peter stands up. (laughs) I love it, man. I would have loved to have been there. Man, it would have been fun. You're sitting in that crowd going, go, Peter, go. Come on, man. Come on. Say it. Say it. It's great. All right. Come on, y'all. Wake up or something, you know? You may not be excited about this, but I, I am, all right? Look at Acts 15, 11. So he first starts out this way. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot 
be saved. Wow. Now, we're good Baptists, right? (laughs) We see that one a mile away, don't we? We go, that's heresy. That's foolishness. That cuts against the grace of God. Pardon the pun. (laughs) I'll wait for it. Um, All right. (laughs) I got to be careful with this one. (laughs) What are they saying? You've got to do something. To be saved. You've got to follow the law of Moses. You've got works that need to be done here. And if you don't do those works, you cannot be saved. Well, that's devastating. That's antithetical to the gospel message. That's antithetical to all that Paul and Barnabas has been teaching these people. In Acts chapter 14, verse 28, we know that they've been in Antioch, and it says specifically they spent a long time with the disciples. What have they been doing? They've been teaching them about God's grace. They've been teaching them about the gospel of Christ. And all of a sudden, you got a group come in that says something completely antithetical to what they've been teaching these Gentile believers. Totally antithetical to the gospel. What they're saying is you're not really saved because you haven't done something. The grace of God isn't enough. You've got to add to it in order to make sure that it actually works. In order to verify that what you say is true that happened in your life, these are the things that you've got to do. And if you haven't done them, then what you say took place isn't correct. It's a serious threat. Because it can create a division between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in an absolute significant way. We've seen threats all the way through Acts, to disrupt the unity of the body of Christ. The unity of the body of Christ is a testimony to the world about the reality of God at work. And if we don't have unity as a body, then our testimony in the world is diminished. Because when we go and tell people that Jesus Christ can change our lives, they're looking past us into the disruptive thing called the church behind us when it is not unified. And they're saying, thanks a lot. We don't want anything to do with that. So once again, we have a satanic attack on the church. And this one is pretty potent because our flesh loves to be approved by what we do. It's an alarming threat. And we've got to be careful as believers not to add anything to grace because grace plus anything is no longer grace. Verse 2, it says, When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. The word dissension means there was an insurrection, there was a debate, there's, there's strife, there's a lack of unity. They, they all of a sudden have an attack come into the church. Paul and Barnabas have spent a long time with these believers 
Many of them came to know Christ through the testimony of Paul and Barnabas. The gospel message has been proclaimed and many people have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden there's a group that comes in and says, well, that's just not enough. You got to add something to grace in order to really give it some meat. There's dissension. There's debate. It's interesting to me. Spiros talks about it this way. It's a philosophical debate. These people weren't asking questions because they wanted to know the true answer. They were arguing with Paul and Barnabas. Don't get into those kind of debates. They're not worth it. In fact, the Bible tells us don't have anything to do with it. Don't wrangle about words. It's not worth it. It just hurts the people that are listening in. And so Paul and Barnabas recognize this is a problem. They recognize this is an issue. The church recognizes this, the leadership there. And they're going to send Paul and Barnabas along with some other individuals to Jerusalem in order to make sure that there is unity on what grace really is, what the gospel message really says. This is not a new attack against the gospel. Stephen was killed for this. In Acts chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, it says specifically that they put forward false witnesses concerning Stephen, and they, these false witnesses were saying, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. This isn't anything new. But all of a sudden, it has the potential of creating a divide between the Gentile believers and between the Jewish believers in a way that completely obliterates the gospel message and the taking of the gospel to the uttermost. Remember, Paul and Barnabas just just come back from their first missionary journey. They were encouraging the believers in Antioch, and they were sharing with them the grace of God and how God had been at work all through the regions. This was a threat. That could have destroyed all of that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, we're told this For by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith. He doesn't say, For by grace you have been saved because you kept the law of Moses and oh, you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. No, no. It is grace through faith. That's essential. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What does he mean? Salvation is the gift of God. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can be good enough for. The law was given not to give us a ladder to climb to heaven. The law was given in order to reveal to us our desperate need of a loving Savior. Because we're not good enough. And we could never be good enough. God knows that. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. This threat is significant. And folks, I want to encourage you in this. There's nothing new under the sun. We're seeing this today in a way that is remarkable. It is frightening. We have religions all over the place that are adding to grace. And as Baptists, we got to be careful about it too. Because our flesh, like it or not, is just as wicked. It really is. We can't add to grace. Grace 
is the unmerited favor of God toward us because of who he is. It is God's love towards us, unconditional. And salvation is by grace through faith. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because we recognize that he alone is able to save us from our sin. Period. Well, there's a joyful celebration, and I like this part of it because it lightens it up a little bit. (laughs) Verse 3 says, Therefore... Well, because of all that's going on, this threat, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. I think it's kind of interesting. They're, they're going through these regions on their way from Antioch back to Jerusalem. They go through Phoenicia. They go through Samaria. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, when Paul, who was at that point known as Saul, was persecuting the church, many of the people, the believers, had fled. The Jewish believers had fled from Jerusalem into these specific regions. Acts eleven nineteen says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. So what's very clear here is that Paul was taking the message of what God had done in the different missionary journey that he had been, in the different cities that he had gone to. And he was sharing with Jewish believers how Gentiles had been converted. And it says there was great joy. (laughs) Let me ask you something. What do you think he was telling them? What do you think he was telling them? Oh, there was so many people that came to know Christ. Well, yeah. Now, that's kind of cool, but is that really all that he was telling them? I don't know. I'm going to read into this. Can I do that for a little bit? Because I I think this is kind of a fun moment, right? Right? I think what Paul and Barnabas were telling them was, yes, that there had many who had come to know Christ. There were many who had been saved. There were many who had been converted. But I think they were specific because they had spent a lot of time with these people and they had gotten to know them. And they knew what they were before and they knew what God had done to change their lives. So it kind of goes like this. Oh, we met this guy, Bob. Oh, you should have seen this guy. What a mess. He was sleeping with the temple prostitutes. He was worshiping Zeus. He was unfaithful to his wife. When God got a hold of him, you should see the difference in his life. Now his family is a priority. Now he's a part of the church. And he comes and he sits on the front row and he sings how great thou art. You should see him sing how great thou art. They didn't have how great thou art back then. I I understand that, okay? Please don't write me emails on that. I, understand. I, I get it. I know that. <laughs> All right. Or what about Jane? Oh, you should. This precious girl, she was hooked on drugs. She worshiped Zeus. She was abused. She was not cared for. She wasn't loved. And God did a work in her life. And God came along and she heard the gospel message. 
And we don't know how it actually happened, but the Spirit of God worked in her heart so that she could understand. And she realized that Jesus was the only answer. And you should see her now. She's sitting in the front row. She's singing Amazing Grace. (laughs) Praise God. What about some of the children? You should see little Johnny. He, He didn't have a family that really cared for him. They abused him. He was basically a street kid because he was kicked out. He was starving. And so he did all kinds of things in order to just earn a meal. And God got a hold of his life. And God helped him to understand that he's a father. And that kid now has a father. That kid now understands that God is his father and God loves him unconditionally. And it's by the grace of God that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that that young man now is able to sit in the front row and sing, Be Thou My Vision. Folks, what's your journey? See, Paul and Barnabas are traveling from Antioch to Jerusalem, and they're filled with the Spirit of God. They're filled with the stories of what God has done. They're able to share with the Jewish believers, look at what God has done. Look at how God has transformed people's lives. And there was great joy in the churches. Folks, I think that's the story of the church in so many ways. What's your journey What were you before? What are you now? And you can point to the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace, and you can say, it's not because of my works. It's not because of what I earned. It's not because of what God expected me to do that I achieved for him. It's because of what Christ has done for me. Praise God. And then we can all sit, not all on the front row. (laughs) And we can sing. To the glory of God. That's the report. Look what God's done. So they get to Jerusalem. And they're welcomed in by the leaders there. They're welcomed by the apostles, the elders. And they begin to report all that God had done with them. Giving God the credit for it. Giving God the glory for it. Because he alone is worthy of that. There's an alarming threat. It's an attack on grace. There's a joyful celebration as they begin to go to Jerusalem to share with the leaders there what God had done and to make sure that there was unity about this important issue, the gospel, the grace of God. And there's a clear defense. I don't think everybody was excited that Paul was there in particular. Paul had been trained under Gamaliel. Paul knew it all. Boy, if you wanted to talk to Paul about the law, you wanted to talk to Paul about, you know, the difference between the law and the system, this meritorious system. That's a fancy word for for a system that makes you do certain things in order to earn something. Merit. A meritorious system. I don't think these Pharisees who were believers were too excited to have to argue with Paul. Because Paul's life had been so radically changed. Paul's life was just completely antithetical to what it had been. And Paul is one of the greatest preachers of grace this world has ever seen. 
So they get there, they're welcomed, but it immediately goes into verse 5 where it says some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. Now catch this, the Judaizers, I don't believe, were Christians. I don't believe they were believers. They were saying you can't be saved unless. But here we have believers standing up. They've come out of a system of merit. And they say this, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, what are they saying? In a nutshell, what they're saying is, okay, we'll give them that they're believers. We can't argue with the conversions. We can't argue with the fact that they have the Holy Spirit. But once they come to know Christ, well, then they better, and you can finish it out. So it's not just an attack and not just a threat on coming to Christ. It's a threat on how we walk with Christ. John Polhill says it this way in the New American Commentary. He says, it's not surprising that some Pharisees came to embrace Christ as the Messiah in whom they had hoped. For all their emphasis on law, it is also not surprising that they would be reticent to receive anyone into the fellowship in a manner not in accordance With tradition, that tradition was well established for proselytes, Gentiles who wanted to become, in effect, Jews. Circumcision and the whole yoke of the law. See, the pharisaical meritorious system was very clear. You want to become one of us, you need to be circumcised, and you need to absolutely take care of every jot and tittle with regard to the law. You need to follow it if you're going to become one of us. And so all of a sudden that raises its ugly head within the body of Christ where the grace of Christ has freed us from the religion of men. Well, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter, you think? (laughs) This was a serious threat. In verse 7 it says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now in this, as they're coming together, there's much debate. And I don't know that we ought to gloss over that. Because the word debate means that they were passionate about what they believed. We might put it into maybe just a little bit of a lesser degree than an all full out war within the church. But it was serious, it was intense. People believe what they believe, and these were worldviews. These are things that people have based their entire eternal perspective of God on. And as a result, they are going at it. Peter stands up and makes his statement. He's referring very specifically to the story of Cornelius. Remember how the Lord had brought the sheet down to him with all the, the animals on it? Three different times, and the Lord says to Peter in the vision that he had, what I have declared clean, don't you call it unclean? And Peter's perplexed after the three times. He's like, Lord, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. I'm not going to start now. And then the men that Cornelius, the Roman centurion, sent, 
to go get Peter because an angel had come to Cornelius telling him to go get Peter. They came to the gate, and Peter goes, oh, that's it. I get it. And so off Peter goes, and he comes into Cornelius' home, and he finds a large gathering of Gentiles, and he tells them it's, it's not lawful for a Jew to come into this kind of gathering with Gentiles. But it's very clear that God sent me here. And what does he do? He preaches to them the gospel. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Peter specifically says to these Gentiles that are there gathered in order to listen to the message of the gospel of grace, of him, meaning Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There's the gospel. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in what he's able to do. You believe... The sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, the shed blood of the Lord, then there's forgiveness of sins. So Peter is sharing this with this group, and and he makes it very clear. You know this. You understand this. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And we've already seen how God has worked in the Gentile people. You know that I have been a chosen mouthpiece to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we've seen how God has blessed that, how God has used that. Verse 10, Peter makes a very specific statement. He says, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All Gentile believers ought to say, God bless Peter. Thank you, brother. Why? Because it is by grace through faith alone that we are saved. And the apostle, our great brother in Christ, stands up in the midst of this attack on the church and he affirms that it is by grace through faith alone. Amen. (laughs) Do you realize there's something that he says here that I think we ought to take note of? Why are you putting God to the test? Do you realize this is the only place in the New Testament where it speaks of the Father being put to the test by believers? Wow. That's an interesting one. That's one to reflect on a little bit. Are we as believers able to put the Father to the test? Well, evidently because the Pharisees, those who had been of the sect of the Pharisees and now had believed, were doing exactly that. They were believers who were putting the Father to the test. What were they doing? They were trying to impose upon their brothers and sisters in Christ a meritorious system, a system that was given specifically to show the need for Christ. And now they're trying to place it on believers. And Peter stands up and says, we couldn't bear this yoke. Our forefathers couldn't bear this yoke. Why are you trying to put upon our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ, a yoke that not even we could bear? 
Why are you trying to impose a system based upon merit on them? And therefore, adding to grace and redefining how we not only come to Christ, but now how we walk with him as well. There's so much in this, folks. I, I, I could spend a lot of time on this. When a believer places another believer under a merit system, then we are testing the Father. Let me ask you something. Why? Why? Why is it said that we're testing the Father if we do that? I would suggest it's because of one thing. When we say that there's something we have to do in order to earn God's favor, what we're saying is that the Father sending his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us was not enough. That's what we're saying. That's why the Father looks at that as an affront. As believers, we have everything that we need in Christ Jesus. We've been given everything that we need to live godly in Christ Jesus. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We don't have to add to grace. If we add to grace, then evidently we haven't fully understood grace. And as a result, we begin to test the Father. As believers, when we begin to impose a system of merit, you've got to do certain things in order to earn God's favor. Then we test the Father. I would suggest it in this way. God's love for us is unconditional. God's love for us is not based on what we can do for God. It's not based on how we can earn God's favor. It's not based on how we can earn his love. He already loves us. So when we begin to add to grace as believers and we say, There's, here's a whole bunch of things that you better go do, not saying that we shouldn't do certain things, but saying that the reason we are doing what we're doing is because we have to earn God's love then we've crossed the line. We're no longer functioning by grace. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Galatians, that you have been severed from grace. You have fallen from grace. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about our walk with the Lord that is based upon what he's done for us, not what we can do for him. Should we be doing certain things as believers? Absolutely. Why do we do it? Because God loves us and because we love him. And we say, Lord, here's the most reasonable thing we can do. Here's my life. Take it. Use it for your glory and for your honor. We do not do what we do in order to try to earn more of God's love. We already have it all. How sad is it when we see children who are insecure within a family because their parents have placed them under a meritorious system and that child has no security. That child is worried about failing. That child is completely focused on what they're supposed to do for their parents in order to earn their love. How devastating is that for a child? How many of us have had that? Where all of a sudden we're in a situation where we know that there's disfavor 
because of something that we messed up in or something that we didn't do correctly or we didn't quite achieve the standard that was imposed upon us. And then we get frustrated because in the, in the whole familial situation, uh, there's hypocrisy because our parents don't measure up either. Folks, this is antithetical to God's way. I am not perfect. One thing I strive for with my children is to tell them, I don't care what grades you get. I don't care what other people think about you. I don't care how many points you score in a basketball game, how many turnovers you have, or what it is that you think that you should have done that you didn't do. I don't care how awesome you think you've done. I love you because you're my son. I love you because you're my daughter. That settles it. Nothing will change that. I am not perfect at that. And I thank God for his grace as a parent in the midst of that. But I do not want my family, I don't want my wife to think that somehow they have to do something to earn my love that is antithetical to grace. How much greater does God love us How much greater is God's love towards us that when we trip and we stumble and we fail, when we don't make disciples like we're supposed to, like he wants us to, when there's not fruit being produced through our lives in the way that God knows that could take place if we would submit to him more. How wonderful is it to know that God loves us the same because God is love. (laughs) We, we focus so much on the doing. We focus so much on what we're supposed to do and how we have failed. And then we turn around and we impose a meritorious system upon people that don't understand. And they come into this thing and they say, what? All the rules and regulations. Folks, there are things that we should be doing. But we don't do those things in order to try to get something more from God than he's already given to us fully. Because grace, plus anything, is no longer grace. I would suggest to you the fruit is just symptomatic. I would suggest to you if the things that we should be doing aren't taking place in our lives, it's not that we've got to have a better program. It's not that we've got to have more activity. It's not that we've got to have more work. There's a relationship issue here. Maybe we got to come back to the reality of how much God loves us. And as a result, he softens our hearts. We confess sin to him and we agree with him what we're not. And God lovingly restores us into the fellowship that is already ours to have. And then all of a sudden, this all becomes quickened in our lives again. And we begin to experience God afresh. And as a result, there's an excitement about our father who loves us in spite of us. And then the testimony that we have is filled with joy and it's filled with the fruit of the Spirit. It's filled with His love. And all of a sudden, people look at us and go, whoa, what happened here? And we can say it's not because we've earned anything. It's not because we deserve anything. It's because of the grace of Christ in our lives. It's because God loves us unconditionally. See, what's happening here is an undercutting of the love of the Father through the Son 
by the means of the Holy Spirit to the individual because there's a desire to place a system, a religious system on people. And religious systems kill. They kill joy. They kill love. They kill fellowship. They kill good works. They ruin the testimony of the body of Christ to the lost. Because it's through Christ that those things are energized. God accomplishes those things. (laughs) Do we recognize how much the Lord loves us? Do we recognize how great the Father's love for us really is? Are we placing in some way on ourselves and perhaps others a meritorious system that says that there's something we've got to do to earn the favor of God? Or do we just bask in the love of our Father and say, thank you, Lord? And as a result, our motivation changes. We don't do the things that we do because we have to in order to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor. We do the things that we do because we love God. Because we know God loves us. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.